0: That's bluenisle.com.
1: Lorraine, I've just had my lunch. I've had breakfast for lunch. This is lunches updates. <laughs> this, this is
2: what the masses are tuning in for. What do you mean you've had breakfast for lunch?
1: Well, I had that classic scrambled eggs sourdough avocado now, for lunch. See, you've upset me
2: on the eggs because you've told me I can't have lots of eggs during the day. I don't know how anyone no. can eat scrambled eggs
1: because they just look awful. <laughs> that's very nice. You're an eggs at breakfast person aren't you?
2: Yes, but I'm even more messed up because of this fasting situation. Oh, where when you get older you shouldn't really eat your breakfast till about 11 so you leave like mm. that 12 hour gap which everyone agrees is really good for you. But then by the time you get to 11 you're almost at lunch. Mm. So eggs feel like the thing to have at the 11 o'clock situation, but now you've told me there's an egg limit per
1: week per day. Oh, definitely. Egg limits. Well, they're high in cholesterol, aren't they? So you can't have too many. So you're going to have to rethink your whole egg-based diet, I would say.
2: Well, also, now that I don't eat any meat or fish, Mm. they figure quite heavily in my Mm. diet, don't they? Mm. Why do you always do this to me? Every time (laughs) I think I've got it right on the culinary front, you come up with some... Reason I can't have a lot of something. Yes. maybe I'm now just... You, now it's eggs. Maybe I'm just making it up just to upset you. Messing with my mind. Oh, yeah. My son calls it jerking my chain there's more ag, I'm jerking your chain That's something he's told me I can or cannot do. That's what you're doing to me.
1: Because, of course, the last time we recorded, I'd, I'd just had an egg sandwich, hadn't I? <laughs> so yes, Trish.
2: Prompted egg chat. But We're going to win awards for this. Uh, I can tell you this chat, the egg chat.
1: I'm only allowed an egg sandwich when there's nobody else in the house because they, they all get cross because... Um, oh, don't tell me. Yeah, a bit gassy, oh, bit gassy. Oh.
2: Well, almost <laughs> instantly. At least 50 gassy, yes. Is that why you only do them now you work from
1: home? Yes. Oh, God, yes, exactly. Nothing eggy in the office. (laughs) Hello. Hello. Welcome to Postcards from Midlife. I'm Lorraine Candy. I'm Trish Halpin, and we're on a mission to help you make the most of your magnificent midlife. We'll be tackling everything from mind and body wellness to HRT and your sex drive. Lorraine and I are here to help you have a stylish second act and answer all your midlife questions on fashion, beauty, careers, relationships, family, and as always, the challenges and joys of parenting teens.
2: (laughs) Welcome to Postcards from Midlife, everyone. As most of you will know, this podcast is where we take a lighthearted but useful, practical and usually helpful look at how women navigate this stage of their lives. Today, we are going to be meeting a woman who has changed the lives of so many other women for the better through her pioneering work in the NHS. And I'm really pleased to have such an iconic guest on the show on the eve of World Menopause Day, which for those of you listening in real time is tomorrow, Monday,
1: October the 18th. Yes, we do get some of the most amazing guests on our podcast. And Dame Leslie Regan, who we'll be meeting shortly, is a force of nature. And I'm glad we've had her in our corner as women for such a long time. She's a leading expert in women's healthcare and is still treating patients on a daily basis in her mid-60s. She's the chair of Wellbeing of Women and has some exciting news about a new campaign they're launching, which could help you on a daily basis. And I'd say Dame Leslie probably has more energy than you and I combined range do yeah.
2: you think yeah but it wouldn't be hard this week because i oh. have succumbed to the not covid cold oh, as the yes. daily telegraph called mm. it at the weekend it's doing the rounds i caught it from my teenage son obviously mm-hmm. he was over it after two days and i'm still battling away with oh. it but i am a bit annoyed because this week it's my 21st wedding anniversary oh. and um, I think Mr. Candy has got something more romantic planned than bolloping oh. me up in Night Nurse every night, don't oh, you?
1: Well, congratulations. I mean, having a big red hooter <laughs> from Blue Nose on your wedding anniversary isn't the most romantic of it's things. Not, but, no. but I bet what he's got planned for you isn't as romantic as the thing that Neil did for me this week. Neil,
2: did he light up Wandsworth with your name <laughs> in fireworks, Trish? Has he got you a love poem? about oh, your gardening skills. Yes. Has he got you the, a lifetime supply of those disgusting muffins you like to yes. eat with chia seeds in? Don't tell me he's had that disturbing tapestry oh, you did as a child. My framed. Tottenham
1: hotspur, embroidery. What are you talking the about? The cock on a ball. Yes, exactly. <laughs> uh, no, I'd say it's even better than that because it's more this is romantic. Week, well, I think it's romantic in a, a slightly foul way, in that I managed to was having a really good morning yesterday, went swimming, walked the dog, blah la la. Then managed to tread in old blooming dog poo, which wasn't my dog's. Can I just say? Anyways, of course, I just sort of took the shoes off and left them by the door. And lo and behold, he cleaned them for me. And how oh, romantic Trish, is that? How that nice, is romantic. Does it get much better than that after thirty-five years together? I know what must have been going through his mm-hmm. mind. He must have really wanted to please. Has he done something terrible? Yeah. He does like cleaning, though. But uh,
2: yeah. <laughs> that That is is quite you married him isn't it all those years ago I think true love is probably in the small things isn't it Mm. because I have currently got half of a 1980s BMW in my hallway right now and I think that is a sign of love because I don't know many women that want to come down to see that every morning Do do you fall over it to get bruises on your shins do you kick it about when you cross it does make me fiercely frown, as the mm. children say when I see it, because it is a bit oily, Trish. It's Ooh. a bit oily on my wooden
1: Yeah, wooden on floors. wooden floors. We don't like that. Anyway, marital romance aside, today we'll also be taking a deep dive into something that we've been debating on our Facebook group this week. Do your dreams get more vivid during midlife, especially if you're going through perimenopause and menopause? Well,
2: Personally, I do think they do, actually. I think the hormones make that so. Um, you're going to tell me why they get more vivid, mm-hmm. aren't you? Because yes. you have become this week <laughs> an only... Oh, I don't know how to say this, but it's brilliant, isn't it? It's an onlyirocritic. It's <gasps> from the Greek word, and it apparently Ooh. it means those who tell us what dreams mean. It's
1: oneirocritic is how it's spelled. Ooh. It's in the dictionary and everything. okay. You see, I think you're making that up, but let's find out more, shall we? Are ready to jibber jabber. Now, as every perimenopausal woman will know, sleep is not our friend during these years. It's elusive, it's broken, it's hot, it's sweaty, and the lack of it leaves you exasperated, exhausted, and possibly even more furious than you are already, thanks to those fluctuating hormones. Now, we've talked about this on previous episodes of the podcast with sleep expert Catherine Pinkham, and also in the How to Win at Midlife section of the episode we recorded with novelist Josie Lloyd, which had loads of really great tips for sleep hygiene, staying cool while you're in bed. So that's also worth checking out if you haven't already. But today we're going to be talking about another element of sleep and that's dreams. And in particular, the weird, lucid, bizarre ones we're having in midlife. Yes, I've got
2: one I'm going to tell you Mm -hmm. later. But before I tell you that, I have to say that going on hormone replacement therapy, it solved my sleep Mm -hmm. issues When I was in perimenopause, which I didn't know I was in, I had the most, I call them really horrific nightmares. And Mm -hmm. I would wake up, sit up screaming and my husband would have to sort of stopped me screaming and the Mabel ran in uh, one evening I think it was about sort of two o'clock in the morning because I just was having the oh. worst most upsetting really mm-hmm. feverish kind of trapped mm. all sorts of dreams that were drifting back in the past trying to rescue the children but they were physically waking me up in, the, in mm-hmm. a really awful agitated state and it was and I also obviously at that point before I mean I was covered in those night sweats which are just something else aren't
1: they yes yeah well it's all a bit of a vicious circle which we will talk about in a Mm. bit but um I think it's important to say you're not the only one I'm not the only one because we've had a number of posts on the Facebook group about this Marina said absolutely crap night last night up twice and weird dreams in between waking Steve Martin came round to my house and asked for a drink which I didn't have Steve Martin, she, she means the actor, Steve Martin. She means the comedian, she? doesn't she? The comedian, she? Steve yeah. Martin. That's a sort of nice but anxiety-ish dream. Very odd. And Rachel says, I'm 44 and having some unusual experiences. Every now and then I have a week or so of waking up drenched with sweat. During these times, my sleep is awful. I feel like I'm half asleep dreaming, but my mind is repeating the same task over and over again. Last night, it was Googling a recipe and getting the same result every time. I get up the next day exhausted. I mean, that is exhausting, isn't it? It's
2: terrible, isn't it? Being
1: trapped in a yeah, world of repetitively doing the same
2: thing Round again and day. again yeah. Oh yeah, like having children anyway I like this one from Helen she says I am on month two of HRT and I am feeling so much better mm-hmm. I feel as if a big dark cloud has blown away but I'm having very weird dreams during my lovely long night sleeping I haven't slept so well for a very long time last night I dreamt I was a superhero oh, brilliant <laughs> that, Trish. I She's often a- dream I can fly Oh I like that. Um, well, you know, quite high. Yeah. You know, and I know how I feel about heights, I can't bear them but I we- dream that I can just get out of a situation by actually using imaginary wings
1: and flying off. So you know what flying comes under in dream. It's very analysis? high IQs. <laughs> no. Um sexual concepts. I've got written
2: down say. here in my <laughs>
1: It's not flying sexual experience is finding money and eating delicious food is associated with libidinal and sexual motivations. Oh my goodness flying is the hormones then <laughs> It the testosterone isn't testosterone's it? Testosterone's well one of the charts <laughs> <laughs> but this, getting a full night's sleep every night would definitely be my superpower if I had a choice and actually with me old HRT I'm sort of nearly getting there but if you are having disrupted sleep thanks to night sweats and insomnia and strange dreams are making things worse it's probably worth knowing what's going on and essentially what's happening is we're waking up at points in our sleep cycles that we wouldn't naturally wake up in and we can easily be in the full throes of a dream at this point um, maybe making us much more likely to remember them and therefore oh, they I can see. appear more vivid. You wouldn't normally be awake when this is happening. No, but your
2: it, hormone fluctuations are waking you yes, up. Yes, exactly. Yeah, got got and then it. it
1: becomes a vicious circle because obviously in midlife, we're in a bit of a minefield, as we know anyway, with you know all the stressy stuff going on with jobs, with kids, with teenagers, with aging parents, work, all of that. And that worry can feed into our dreams and make them really sort of dramatic or scary or action-packed. That then is going to raise your heartbeat and increase your level of adrenaline, which is then going to trigger a night sweat. Do you see? There's no way out. There's no way out to happen, is there? Exactly. So if you haven't been woken up by the dream itself, you will be by the pools of sweat that are kind of soaking through your PJs, won't you? That's extremely annoying. Mm. And one other thing to sort out, let me tell you about
2: the one I had. I think you'd call it an anxiety dream, maybe. I was back in my job in the office at the Sunday Mm -hmm. Times And I'd been given lots of stuff I had to do. And Mm -hmm. obviously there was a deadline because there's always a deadline because, you know, we've worked in careers. There's always a deadline. And I was trying to get all this stuff done, but nobody knew I was there. (laughs) It's really weird. I had to ask people to do things and people saying, but you're not supposed to be here. Why are you trying to do this? And it it was like some I'd been given some kind of Truman Show type game where I couldn't Mm -hmm. really tell them why I was there. But I still had to get this thing done. And it was just going on and it was getting really complicated. And I was panicking. It was proper
1: anxiety dream what does that mean in your research well in my research my extensive research apparently you're not supposed to try and interpret the dream literally through the no. symbols and visuals you're supposed to kind of think about what do the emotions make you feel what do they evoke and what is it bringing up for you emotionally so what were you what would you say that was bringing up for you emotionally I was overwhelmed Trish uh, overwhelmed yes yes too much on.
2: Yeah, too much, Don, it didn't make sense, and I was I had no control over and any nobody of it. To And I was in a place you. I did not want to be, Yes. <laughs> and no yes. one helped me. Yeah, no okay. one could help me. I'd, I'd already set that pattern in by yes. telling myself I couldn't tell them why I was there.
1: Yes, yeah, well, that all makes a lot of sense, I have to so, say, with sometimes, all though, the madness there, going on in your life at the moment. Well,
2: exactly, there's too much. I started saying no this week and mm-hmm. setting
1: some boundaries. Um, sometimes
2: it's about filling. I often think it's about the brain just filling in gaps, you mm-hmm. know, I'm worried that we we could be dreaming what we want to dream, but we don't because we're stuck in patterns. And when we don't think anything, the brain just fills the gap with all the Mm -hmm. stuff that's happened during the day as well, doesn't it? Because some Mm -hmm. of it's a sort of association with... The residue of the day, they call it. Don't yeah,
1: they? one of my dreams that um, I've, I've only had once, I'd say, in the last two years since leaving Marie Claire, but also <laughs> magazine publishing related, was um, I used to have this a lot. Was it was me at fashion shows in Milan or Paris or whatever. <laughs> Not a dream. <laughs> well, it starts out as the dream, doesn't it? But no, it was lots of fun. It was so glamorous. It was so fabulous. But I was forever losing my handbags in these fashion shows and in, dream. Uh, in the dream handbag being stolen causing leading me to all sorts of bother, or not necessarily stolen but just couldn't find it and just a lot of searching I was doing a lot of searching so yeah. um if we were thinking about that from a emotional metaphors, triggers metaphors, metaphor because yeah. obviously no one's going to steal your handbag at a fashion show it just doesn't does not happen no, does it not people too. leaving you know Hermes Birkins around all over the place <laughs> lying around <laughs> yeah, not your Sarah handbag. no not my Zara handbag exactly well so I suppose it it was about searching for something, feeling anxiety and looking for something that I couldn't find, feeling that I'd lost something in my life. Which is what Maybe. dreams are. I used
2: yeah. to have uh, one as a child where I was in very deep water. Mm. This is going to upset you. And I couldn't oh. work out which way was up,
1: <gasps> out,
2: Ooh. on which way Ooh. was down, deeper. And I was running Ooh. out of air. That's not That's good. That's scary,
1: it? especially with all that open. Did you thing.
2: have it? My daughter Gracie believes that you can enter other people's dreams on what she calls the astral plane. Oh, yes, I okay. watched quite a few YouTube videos mm-hmm. about that yesterday, Trish. So I am, uh, I'm coming into one of
1: yours. <laughs> is it the one where I'm naked? That's another. No, I don't one. want to come in that one.
2: <laughs> <laughs> You're naked and Neil's oh. cleaning poo off your shoes. <laughs> That's for your only fan site, <laughs> exactly, isn't it? Exactly. That's yes. a whole different thing. But yeah. I don't know whether I believe that uh, you can actually do that. Yeah, i tell you what, there's a lot of research been done around mm-hmm. the lucid dreaming. Oh, yes. um, so when you're half awake, half asleep. So scientists carried out a study, I think it was about four years ago, where they asked people questions in lucid dream state, which they mm-hmm. can kind of measure they're in by body temperature and whereabouts they are in their sleep cycle. And people remembered answering the questions. One man remembered answering them in his car on the car radio but he remembered the oh. very specific question so I think in lucid dream states, and you can perhaps you could alter your moods they say you should write it down don't they I yes. did a bit of research on Chinese medicines while I talked to Katie brindle who we had on the show who's a chinese medicine practitioner and she said dreams are about emotions um so when the body is slightly out of balance so yeah. part of you is out of balance so your heart is about your emotions your liver is anger your lungs are grief when all these things aren't quite working or are not very well you might be having dreams linked to that, so getting everything back in balance.
1: Mm-hmm. stop. Yeah, you which those ties more. in that with that yeah. whole what it, what emotions is it bringing up for you, isn't it? Yeah. So I don't know where where do we go with dreams? I mean, if writing them down. Mm-hmm. Philippa Perry is a fan of that, isn't she? Because she sort of yeah. says that it's a really good way of seeing what metaphors your unconscious is coming up with, and it's it's yeah. a useful tool if you're feeling a bit lost in life and you're trying to work out what's going on. You can write them down. There are she, apps. There yeah, are she was apps. very
2: good on how. You sometimes in midlife, because of the change, mm-hmm. you can panic about the place you're in because you're in that gap between young and old. You're in the middle of or the end of a career and a new career, and, and all of that can make your mind work over time. Mm-hmm. And it starts to try and fill in all that information for you because you want to feel in control of it. And if you can, she was saying in something she wrote, you take that step back. And just sit with the uncomfortableness of the feeling of Mm -hmm. not really knowing what's going on. Mm -hmm. Um, Yeah, there is, you can write them down. You need to look at the associations with the day. Um, But she said, and I think a lot of the research I did, it's really about symbols. And it's not so much remembering them because they mean something. It's more... You, you sitting down the next day and thinking about how you are and what prompted mm-hmm. all of those feelings, isn't it? It's
1: yeah, kind of... because they can kind of, if I, I sometimes forget what the dream was, but the feelings sit with me mm. for quite a long time during the day and I can feel a bit discombobulated or whatever. And, and i kind of realise that it is actually about the dream. But apparently if you say to yourself before you go to bed, I am going to remember my dreams in the morning and you do these sort of affirmations around that, that's, that's yeah. likely to help you as well. An alarm clock, if you're sort of in a deep, Keep sleeping and an alarm clock wakes you up. Uh, that's not helpful. Apparently you can, you're better off trying to get something that gradually wakes you up. So, you know, you can get those little light <laughs> crashing in the door. Don't think so. <laughs> you can get like little sound things that get louder and louder or a light that sort of gradually comes on something like that. But um, mm-hmm. I think you would have to be quite committed to a bit of dream analysis. What, that that it, what do you know about sleepwalking, Trish? I don't know anything about sleepwalking. I know a little bit about sleep paralysis. Do you want to do sleepwalking first then? Well, I used to sleepwalk a
2: lot as a child, and then my parents had to lock the doors front and oh, back gosh. and hide the keys. And my, uh, of my four children, Mabel is the only one that sleepwalks, but she will come into our room now and again, and her eyes are wide open, Ooh. and she will talk about whatever she's dreaming mm-hmm. about. She'll be usually getting cross with her brother about something. And I'll put her back into her bed and then she shuts her eyes. I always wonder whether maybe it's a hereditary
1: thing, the sleep. Because, yes, with you, exactly, it could well be. I think night terrors in kids can be hereditary as well, apparently. Yes. But I've had, have you had that sleep paralysis thing where you feel like you're, you're sort of... <laughs>
2: <laughs> Talking about nineteen eighties BMWs.
0: Oh yeah, exactly. That kind of that's that your that's your paralysis. anniversary
1: evening dinner uh, uh, conversation. Together, yeah, <laughs> coming up. <laughs> what is sleep
0: paralysis? Well,
1: Trish. basically, when you're in that REM stage, the rapid eye movement stage of sleep, where you're having these dreams. Your limbs and muscles can become temporarily paralyzed, which is quite interesting, isn't it? I had a feeling when I was a teenager of this where I was sort of felt that I was awake. So it was quite lucid. I literally couldn't move. And then you start, you could start hallucinating a bit. And I was convinced to this day that somebody came in to the room and then left the room you can also get that feeling of something pressing down on your chest yeah. have you ever had that not Margot yes. coming and sitting on you <laughs> in the night but properly quite giant
2: terrifying feline trying to suck the life out
1: of you like yes. yes yes exactly so there's a lot about sleep and dreams in there but if anybody really is struggling with sleep with nightmares having recurring nightmares or anxiety of course it's always worth talking to your gp about because they can refer you for basic types of help cbt with insomnia and things like that so that is worth following up on
2: yes and as we've said a lot of it is linked to your perimenopause Mm -hmm. and menopause symptoms and the fluctuations of the hormones because your brain obviously has estrogen receptors and when that's all fluctuating it will affect you in many different ways so it's definitely worth checking out with your gp
0: ready to pop the question
3: The
2: Our guest today is one of the driving forces of women's healthcare in the UK, a former president of the Royal College of Obstetricians and Gynaecologists, only the second woman to hold this post in almost 100 years. She has been reforming and influencing policy affecting women's health for more than 40 years, working on the front line of the NHS as a gynaecologist and behind the scenes as an advisor in Whitehall. Age 65, Dame Leslie Regan is an unstoppable, energetic powerhouse. She is still seeing patients alongside her role as the new chair of the charity Wellbeing of Women. A mum of twin daughters, Dame Leslie has survived three breast cancer diagnoses and is known for her forthright campaigning on the issue of preventative medicine. A vocal advocate of HRT, she has written several books, including Your Pregnancy Week by Week and Miscarriage, What Every Woman Needs to Know. Professor Regan will be talking to us about the new Wellbeing of Women campaign to ensure employers pledge to support women enduring perimenopausal and menopause symptoms at work, a campaign launched by Sophie Countess of Wessex earlier this month. We're also looking forward to getting some career advice and discovering how you can reframe your mindset to overcome some of life's biggest and most difficult hurdles. Welcome Dame Leslie. What an honour to have a dame on our little podcast during Menopause Awareness Month.
3: Well, a
1: menopausal game at that. <laughs> 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 so oh. it's very appropriate. Thank you, Leslie, You have one of the most impressive CVs in the medical profession. I mean, it took us hours to read it. It that's is brilliant. so impressive; it really is. And you do such invaluable work that's no doubt saved and created many, many lives. We'd love you to tell our listeners what have been your proudest professional moments up till now, amongst so many. I'm sure.
3: Well, I think it's gone in stages because I've had a sort of a bit of a portfolio career. First of all, I was very proud that I was able to set up a specialist recurrent miscarriage service because when I was a junior pixie in training nobody knew anything about it they didn't know why women miscarry they were told to go away and try again and it was all nature trying to sort it all out mm-hmm. and I really thought that women deserve better than that when I saw the trauma on their faces and it was a big fight but I did manage to get a very specialist service together and as that service grew I think one of the proudest things is watching the research fellows that I then got infused to come come and join me, become really fantastically successful in their own right. I think the proudest is in the succession planning, the sort of trying to make things sustainable. The other thing I would say was there was another time in my life when I was doing a lot of work overseas and I managed to persuade the large anonymous American donor to give me a very large sum of money to run a a family planning programme in sub-Saharan Africa. And we called it Leading Safe Choices because it was post-delivery family planning and safe abortion care. And this was at a time when people didn't talk about this and it was a bit awkward. And again, I recruited people who were as enthusiastic for women to have choices and control over their lives to work with me I just felt so incredibly proud of the team because they really fought against all the odds. We actually got it embedded into the healthcare system. I felt that was a very proud moment. And I think that one of the things I've learned about women's health is that it's an incredible privilege to see doing doing my job because I look after girls and women from cradle to grave. And I really Mm -hmm. do think that by informing them about what they can do to help themselves is really the key to all of this. It's not the clever medicine, it's getting women to understand what they can do to help themselves women do tend to follow advice if you can explain it to them mm-hmm. in ways that they understand and they don't just follow the advice but they share it with other people so everybody in society gets on better when women's health is prioritized
2: because everybody benefits it's mm-hmm. it's a very simple thing it's a win-win and over the years you've seen I mean as a gynecologist in all the work you've done many women are there women that have stood out for you or have moved you or changed your mind about something that you remember oh yes
3: so many have taught me the most extraordinary lessons about their humility about their courage their tenacity to continue despite it all and the times when they've told me off as well have been really valuable and said well you're not helping me here and I don't want to know about that I want to hear about this But I think it's really, really emphasised to me how education of women is the absolute key to not just their health, but improving society in every aspect of care. And it may sound a bit trite, but it is just so fantastically important. I often reflect on how lucky I was because I came, came from a very humble background. But my father, although he had no education of his own, he left school at 12. But he was determined that his daughter was going to be educated. And he instilled in me this belief that if I tried hard enough, I could get anywhere. I just think that was the most extraordinary gift, because without it, my life could have had a very, very different trajectory. The patients I've got, I think it's mostly their courage and their determination to to get through stuff, despite the bows and arrows that
1: the world throws at them. Now, like me, you've got twins. I found that whole having twins, having a full-time job, doing nothing on the scale of what you're doing. I found it very, very challenging. How did you blend all of this? Because you're on so many boards, committees, et cetera, as well as the day-to-day work that you do, as well as the home life, as well as everything else. Well, it was all a bit chaotic, Trish, actually, Mm -hmm. because (laughs) I hadn't planned to have twins. They were spontaneous
3: twins, Although everyone said, oh, goodness, she had IVF because mm-hmm. they knew I was a fertility expert. But no, they were spontaneous twins. I hadn't really planned it. And at the time, I, I was married and I had four stepchildren who I was looking after. So at one point, we had six children in the house. So mm-hmm. oh my it was gosh. absolutely chaotic. I don't regret it because it was fun as well. But we had a live-in nanny. Were mm-hmm. you working shifts? No, I worked full time. Um, but also I had to because at that point, I was a junior academic. I was a senior lecturer and consultant. And it wasn't easy to get maternity leave I I had about 10 weeks of maternity leave and then I had to go back to work because we couldn't really afford not to have two salaries and that was it, it so it wasn't this sort of selfless I must return to work it was actually there was a financial need to do so it was tricky and, and you know uh, w- when the twins were little as I'm sure yours Trish were you really don't know what's hit you do you and I hadn't actually looked after small babies before so I mm-hmm. didn't know any difference so I just assumed this is what it was like it was dreadful <laughs> <laughs> <laughs>
1: you said that word yeah. it really it
3: really was wasn't it really it hard was absolutely oh, shocking I mean I can also say that I, I and I think you'll probably share my view mm-hmm. is that being a twin parent is one of the greatest privileges ever and mm-hmm. it's very carefully kept secret you don't know about it until you become one mm-hmm. and then people come up to you in the street and say oh isn't it special and it really is yes and my girls are quite simply the best thing that's ever happened to me. And they haven't paid me to say that. They, they are fantastic. <laughs> the it's just got better as they've grown older. In those early years, it was very chaotic. And, and I was very conscious of the fact that I never went to coffee mornings. I never mm-hmm. went to the Yummy Mummies Yoga Club. Never on time for sports day or prize giving. I was always sort of sneaking in the back quickly. And yet, when they went off to university, they were such independent young people. And then they, they were so grateful to me. They said to mm-hmm. me so many times after that, Mummy, you know, the fact that we could just go off, you'd say, well, bye, see you at the end of term, ring me if you need me. Whereas so many, I think, of their friends had helicopter parents who Mm -hmm. were always wanted to go and visit and find out what was going on so I went once a term if they wanted me to visit them one went up to Edinburgh the other one was down in the south but I'm not pretending for a moment that being a mother of toddler twins is absolutely shocking I I tell you I used to go to to work for a rest on a Monday morning
1: I was like oh just get me on the train (laughs) it's like even being on a back train (laughs) yeah and if you look back I said what
2: advice could you give women who were in their 40s now with a big job and probably early teens?
3: Well I really do believe Lorraine that they don't need you that much when they're babies Mm -hmm. they need you a bit later on that's when they really need you to be around and to be just about around and about not necessarily having deep and meaningful conversations but just being around and picking up on what's going on. At the end of the day I really think that I was there when I when they needed me and I think that was later on. And I think a lot of, you know, that awful business at the beginning when I must be with my baby, it's a lot to do with us wanting something, which is not a bad thing either. I'm not criticizing women who want to do full-time motherhood, but I really did want to carry on working. And and, uh, and I, I think it was important to be a bit of a role model for, for other women in my specialty, because there weren't many of us when I became a consultant yeah. and now there are a lot more. So I, I hope I've managed to demonstrate that you can do it without being too sort of regimented and too sort of, well, I am bossy, I can't help.
2: Yeah. <laughs> you know, without being insufferably bossy shall we say you have worked surprisingly even though it's women's health in an incredibly male dominated part of the nhs so there was a quote i think you mentioned to me when we spoke earlier somebody saying to you that the the rugby team would suffer because you had qualified and you weren't a man and you couldn't play rugby <laughs> oh for that <laughs> so how did you deal with all of that sexism and, and misogyny over the years it's interesting so i went to the Royal free medical school which was 50 50 girls and, boys.
3: and that was because it used to be the only girls' medical school and they let the boys in. So not surprisingly, a lot of the senior mentors there were women because they'd be the only women. I didn't really twig about this male hierarchy until quite a bit later in my career. It was a bit like, bit like a sledgehammer then, but it was extraordinary. So when I was went to Cambridge to Brooks, I was the first female registrar and I thought, well, this is extraordinary, why is that? There were very nice consultants there who were very helpful and wonderful mentors to me. And then when I became a consultant down at St Mary's, which I did in 1990, which is only 31 years ago. As I said, one of my colleagues said, oh dear, it's a sad day for the St. Mary's rugby team, meaning, well, you, you can't play in the boys rugby team, can you? I was quite upset about it, actually, because it was day one well, and I was terribly nervous. And I was trying to put on a good show of being, oh, yes, I can cope with all this. And then I thought, oh dear. And I really, I sort of went into the loo and had a bit of a sniffle. And then um, and I thought, come on, pull yourself together, Leslie. We've got to get on with this. And then in fact, that person, that male, um, became an incredibly strong supporter of mine. I think when he realised that, you know, I was going to pull my weight, and I was going to do the job, I mean, you just have to bat an eyelid at it and then just carry on. I think it's true to say that my generation had to prove that they were even better, and I don't think that's quite the case now. I think that many of my trainees now who are 20 or 30 years my junior, they feel that if they if they do a good job, that is sufficient, which is how it should be. And, and I always say to them, you must always work, I think, on the principle if you need to be um, rated and judged on qualities and what, how well you do the job, not whether you're a man or a woman. In, I think in the past we needed to do sort of, you know, the tokenism, getting the women onto the yeah. committee. I hope that before I retire, if I ever do... I don't think women... you are going to retire, are you? <laughs> no, no. <laughs> no, as I think I shared with you, when I even thought about the idea after I finished the presidency at the RCAG, both of my daughters said, in unison, oh, Mum, no, you'll be insufferable, you can't possibly <laughs> retire. <laughs>
1: Oh, they must be so proud of you, your daughters. And, uh, you know, as you say, as as, as women, uh, we have to role model, don't we, for the next generations and whether it's our daughters or whether it's the women coming up behind us in our industries. Do you think an enormous amount has changed in the industry from when you started to where it is now, both in terms of women's positions, but women's yeah. health issues, the issues that are being focused on right now?
3: Oh, yes. What's been overwhelming for me since 2010, when I first heard Sir Michael Marmot talk about health inequalities i mean i think i knew this data but he really emphasized to me in his r- wonderful report fair society healthy lives that the health care that i've been trained to deliver only provides a third of the solutions and the other two-thirds are the way that women have been educated their socioeconomic status um, and all sorts of serendipity things in their lives. But I was trained to work in a disease intervention service. You know, you waited for women to have a problem and then you tried to sort it out. Mm-hmm. My excitement about women's health and what we're trying to do now is the fact that if I got a little chart out, Trish, I could plot for you what your needs are going to be from the age of 10 to the age of 80. give will take a few years. And lots of these things are predictable and preventable. And I think that's what's so exciting, that people are now starting to realise that although the preventative agenda often takes longer to reap its rewards, that it is so important. And the evidence now and the research, which is showing that things that happen to women in every decade of their life then impacts either positively or negatively on the next decade. And that's incredibly powerful. And persuading people of how they can be part of the solution if they get interested in their own health and, you know, their own lifestyle issues, you know, without sounding too preachy-preachy. So I, I think it's really, really valuable. And I, I'm I, what I'm witnessing is that women are listening to this because they do want to be part of it. And But I, I think that this COVID pandemic has allowed us to shine a focus on things like prevention and we've all had to sit back I think quietly and think "Ooh, so what really matters in life? I think people are thinking well okay what do I want to spend my money and my time on and I think health has become a bigger priority so I really hope that what will come out of this if we look back and and I'm an incurable optimist so I have to think positively about everything that comes out of a disaster Mm -hmm. or a pandemic I hope we're going to sort of look at health as being an asset because historically I think we've always thought that health costs. So what
1: should we be looking for in our 40s and 50s?
3: Well I think the first thing is to look back at your pregnancy because often women behave during their pregnancy physiologically or their bodies respond to it in a way that's almost like going for a road test you know putting your L plates on when you're learning to drive and For example, if you get a bit of gestational diabetes, you know, can't cope with sugar, then you're going to become a type 2 diabetic. And if you have a bit of high blood pressure, it's likely you're going to get heart problems or not necessarily severe ones, but you're at greater risk of heart disease and stroke than compared to your next-door neighbour who didn't have high blood pressure. And then there's the mental health issue, you know one in five women are going to have some form of mental health problem during pregnancy or in the first year after their baby's delivered. And if we could just use that information at that postnatal visit and get that woman to understand that losing weight or going for some help, she's had a mental health problem or some depression, is really going to offset the problems later. It would be such a bonus. I mean, we spend a fortune looking after women during pregnancy and providing high quality antenatal care and collecting all this information and then we do nothing with it. We don't join the dots, do we? We don't join the dots. Exactly that, Gloraine. And that's what we need to do. We need to pick up all these pieces of information. So that's a good thing in the 40s and 50s. And then of course it's important about lifestyle keeping active, keeping fit. Women need to really understand what the things are that are likely to cause some problems. And if we were to go around Paddington Station this afternoon and ask 100 women what they were going to die of, they would all probably say cancer. And they're wrong. The Most of them are going to die of heart disease or the problems of thin bones, osteoporosis. And yet we don't do anything really to teach them what they can do to offset that. And then of course, I, I'm a big supporter, as you know, of menopausal women being looked after and getting their very best help they can and I'm a great advocate for HRT as well I I think it's marvellous not for everybody but for those that want it and I think that we need to spend time informing women about what the risk benefit ratios are of these interventions and medications and letting them decide when they've been given the right information what's right for them not saying you can't have this or you've got to have that but helping them to understand what they can do, be part of the solution.
2: Now, your HRT journey, I find it absolutely fascinating because you've had breast cancer three times. Mm. Which um, quite and a thing for a female, a human which, female. Which is, <laughs> yes, it is quite a thing, especially for someone in the front line of women's healthcare. And you took HRT throughout that. You're aware of the risks. You're absolutely up to date on all the research and the terrible misinformation based on that dreadful survey 20 years ago. Talk mm. our listeners through through your journey with breast cancer because obviously, at the same time, you're bringing up twin girls, you're doing a really big job, and you're going through perimenopause and then menopause.
3: So I started taking HRT in my late 40s because I knew how crabby I was getting. I think my girls sort of emphasised that to me. It was almost miraculous. It was all the achy joints stopped. I mean, I'm quite a slim person, so I don't have lots of oestrogen floating around in in my fat. So my, my, my bones were aching. I couldn't sleep properly. I'd wake up at three and four in the morning, not worrying about stuff, but I just couldn't sleep. And then you knew it would never get better all day. And then the hot flushes, which, in fact, hot flushes weren't that bad. You know, you can cope with those. I I could. It was the lack of sleep and the aching joints and just feeling that I was a shadow of myself. And I really hated that. I went to my doctor, I was well-behaved, uh, and I took it. And then during my screening, the routine mammography, which I'd been having early because my mother and my grandmother had died of breast cancer, I had a small lump come up on the screening. And that was a terrible shock because up until that point, I thought that illness happened to other people. I know that's a very stupid thing to say yes. for a not-so-stupid woman, but I, I just thought it, well, it couldn't be me. I had a lump lumpectomy and I had radiotherapy. How old were you at this point? I was 50. It was my 50th birthday present. And so this is a while ago now because I'm 65 now, but they took me off the HRT because of this. It was awful. I mean, I like the radiotherapy it made me feel so tired and uh, i was worried about this all and then i had these aching joints i couldn't sleep again and then after about a year i went off to see an expert and said look i'm so miserable and um and he said to me yeah i think you're right and i think you should go back on the hrt and he showed me the data that were just coming out to show that with the very early stage tumors that this was very unlikely to be a problem and if i used transdermal so patch Mm -hmm. or gels that it was minimum dosage for maximum benefit and very very in fact there's virtually no risks of thrombosis with um, transdermal and very very small cancer risks and then I had a a second tumor uh, about yeah about 10 years later in the other breast well okay fine you know we're coming up and we had the conversation about should I stop the HRT and fortunately my surgeon a different one this time said well you know you're so well otherwise and you're very slim so you're much more likely to have bone problems later and heart Mm -hmm. problems later and it makes you feel so well and you want to keep on top of your game at work so I continued I was in the 0.8 percent who get a recurrence of this particular early tumor after whole beam radiotherapy and I said to her my lovely surgeon I said so why can't I be in the 99.2 percent and she said very sensibly well because someone's got to be the 0.8 percent so I just thought well okay that's me mm-hmm. and I got on with it and I then had a I thought I had a simple mastectomy and I'm back on my HRT because it makes me able to get through all the things I want to do. And I don't have aching joints and I sleep properly. So... For me, it's absolutely the right thing to do, not necessarily for everybody. And I was very lucky. I was very well looked after and it was caught very
2: early. So I know that I'm going to die of something else. It won't be that. Mm -hmm. You're kind of an expert now in this whole, you're an expert and an expert expert personally and professionally, which kind of makes sense um, with the work that you're doing as Wellbeing of Women's new chair. So this month, Sophie, Countess of Wessex, who is patron of Wellbeing of Women, announced that the charity is going to campaign to get employers to pledge more support for women at work who are enduring perimenopause and menopause symptoms. She said she didn't want women sloping off into the shadows, which is very much what you are saying and that the life you are living. Tell us about the campaign and what you're asking employers and their employees to do.
3: Thank you. I'm very proud of becoming the Chair of Wellbeing of Women. I mean, it's a little bit worrying at times because you think, well, how am I going to raise money in the middle of a pandemic and how's it going to pan out? But I've got some fabulous colleagues and what we decided that we're going to do is to increase our scope. In the past, historically, it's funded research into all sorts of aspects of healthcare for women across the life course. But we want to go one step further. We want to really get into the education and the advocacy. So the educating women, get making sure they've got signposts to great information, so that we could they can really be advocates to help themselves. And we decided that we would like to run a series of campaigns and we felt that the one that really needed to start was actually something towards the end of life. And that was the menopause because it's had such poor coverage and it's been such a poor relation for such a long time so the campaign is called the menopause workplace pledge and what we're asking is for employers companies corporates or just you know small family businesses to help us raise awareness of the menopause and recognize that menopausal women in the workplace can find that they're up against real odds and difficulties and they often lose their confidence have difficulties functioning and we want to encourage them secondly to talk openly and positively um, and respectfully about the menopause I mean there are lots of companies where women are the predominant workforce and yet all the bosses are male and possibly don't understand about this and we want to help those companies support and inform their employees about the menopause and simple steps they can do and I think but the reason it's had the most extraordinary traction over this last week, since we launched it just literally a week ago today, we've had over a hundred companies want to sign up to the pledge. Is because it's non-threatening, and instead of saying you've got to do this and it's going to cost you a fortune, it gives them some examples of what good looks like and say, well, you could do this too. Why not? But most importantly, it's highlighting the fact that most women become menopausal between the age of forty-five and fifty-five, and that, let's face it, is the time when they are most experienced, most productive, giving most to that workplace. And it's crazy to lose them. Mm -hmm. And you know the figures as well as I do. You know, Nearly a million women have left the workplace because they can't cope with their menopausal symptoms or they feel they can't tell their bosses. And interestingly, a lot of the women that I've talked to over this last week have said just feeling that they can talk about it is half of the battle. And interestingly, many of the men that we've talked to have said, Well, of course, we'll talk about it and do what we can. We just didn't know because it was a taboo subject. Mm -hmm. A little bit like periods are in younger women. And there's an inevitability about becoming menopausal. You know, we're all, you know, anyone who lives to the age of 55 is going to become menopausal, Mm -hmm. if not earlier. Mm -hmm. So I think we've got to do something about it. And we've got to make sure that that 30 years that you and I are probably going to live between 50 and 80, because, you know, we're all getting older and older now, can be much better and our well-being can be much greater if we do look at women in this way and support them in that last part of their their journey in their post-reproductive years. Interesting Mm -hmm. that... My generation is the first generation of women who's going to live longer postmenopausally than I was reproductive. That wasn't the case for my mum and my grandma; they died earlier. So it's really important, I think. So I'm really thrilled because we've had such a positive response to this. So many people have got very excited, and um, Hello Magazine have championed us, and Boopa have been supporting us, along with all these other companies that have signed up. And I'm just
1: hoping it's going to be the first of many campaigns. We're going to have lots of different campaigns. That's exciting, and if you meet a woman who was contemplating quitting work because she just you know at this life stage she just felt overwhelmed she couldn't cope with it what advice would you give to her about really making that decision I think I would say to her look I'm sure you're incredibly
3: experienced at what you're doing you're probably at the height of your career at the moment just by because of the experience you've got so what is it that would help you to continue doing what you're doing and being uh, a valuable member of the workforce or the workplace and Mm -hmm. trying to find out what's right for her because you know we've talked to lots of women who've given up and we've talked to lots of women who've actually had good support and been able to continue and actually it tends to be quite simple things about having flexible working. Times Now, pre-COVID, that was probably unthought of. But now, you know, people are working from home. People are doing flexible things. And, you know, I think we've become much more adaptable. So I hope that's going to be easier. You know, temperature control in offices. Mm-hmm. I was talking to Kay Burley. She was saying that all the blokes in the studio are wearing parkas because she likes to keep the temperature yeah. really down. <laughs> Lots of things that one can do. And also, you know, providing women with opportunities to go and talk to menopause specialists. Um, think about dietary things that would help them and possibly considering HRT as I say I'm not going to push everyone onto it but I think they should be have the option to consider that as a trial if because it might and
2: help It should them. be part of the conversation and it really it isn't is it? It's the NHS's first line recommendation for mo- many of the symptoms and it's not even part of the conversation in many workplaces is it? And
3: I think we're going to have to do a lot of talking as well to our, our family doctors and GPs who I know are very very hard pressed but we are going to have to not make every gp and menopause expert but at least try and get somebody interested in women's health and specialist areas of women's health in in, and one of my hopes is that we'll be able to get women's health hubs run so that not every practice has to be an expert but there'll be somewhere that you can reach trish or lorraine you can reach within not too far a distance of your home someone who really has an interest in these things and can provide you with information about all the alternatives i think that has to be the way forward i've said to two secretaries a state who I've worked with quite closely firstly Jeremy Hunt and then Pat Hancock you know why is it that we send the women round four different institutions and four different vaginal examinations and four different embarrassing conversations or intimate examinations when they could actually go to one place for an hour and get it all sorted you know you could have it doesn't your make sense done and your contraception done or your HRT sorted and your mammogram sorted and you could have a discussion about this that you know it just makes sense and we could then keep many more women in the workplace um uh, we keep their you know their employers much happier because they would be well looked after and you know let's face it why would you want to just take four lots of time off work to do something that you could sort out in a couple of hours and this is not rocket science this is oh, not clever it's very simple most of the times when women access health services they're not ill they're just trying to maintain their health or do something sensible like have a cervical smear or stop getting pregnant until they want to be pregnant or or they're trying to go, you know, to have a, a, the best pregnancy they can. I mean, no one would say that pregnancy was an illness, would they? And nor is the menopause. It's a, just a deficiency state. It's just the same thing as, you know, when your thyroid's underactive, you go and take thyroid replacement. I think that a lot of women would benefit from taking hormone replacement when they become menopause. Yeah. So let's focus on keeping them well and making the maintenance services really easy to access. And we're all going to
2: win. Everyone's going to benefit. And most importantly, we'll do it for a lot cheaper. Because you imagine. if if all your records are are all accessible properly as well so as you say you know what happened when you went through your pregnancy it's linked to what might happen when you go through your hormone Mm. deficiency later in life which might be linked to what you went through when you were a teenager it's just the joining of the dots
3: you're so right as another thing that i think has really been emphasized by covid i never write now to any doctor's I just write to the woman I've seen for a telephone consultation or a face-to-face appointment. And I say to her, here's your information. You can now share it with anyone you want. And instead of waiting for the post to lose it or to get lost somewhere, you know, they all go out by email attachment now. And the woman's got her data, her results. You know, they're her possessions, these results. So I think she should be in charge of them. Could you ask your
1: specialist to do that if you have to see a specialist about something?
3: Oh, definitely, yeah. Mm, Okay. Yeah, I mean, I think a lot of people do write to patients now, but I think that the COVID thing has really emphasised, you know, for for a long period of time last year, you didn't seem to be able to get anything out of a medical records Mm. department anywhere. So I just sort of, I just, you know bypassed them and said I'll write to you and here's the results of your test and this is what I think you should do and then they've got the option to take it to different people and decide who they want to share it with mm-hmm. I've, I haven't met any doctors who are cross about it either, I think they're quite pleased that the patient has been given the stuff and that you know they're, they're not the sort of that holder of it all And
2: yeah. two, two experts I'm in the that's... room isn't it we had a GP on last week, she said there are two experts in the room, the patient and the doctor, okay. so if you are genuinely the expert, you've got all your notes and your information <laughs> then you can make you know and that's the preventative health care manifesto isn't it in a way absolutely
3: and I think yeah. it's also, you know, when you say that, the two experts in the room, often when I'm teaching or when we've got the trainees with me, I say, you know, the, the, the key to all this is asking the right questions. If you ask the woman the right questions, you get the right answer, well, you get the answers because they will tell you what the problem is. Yeah. You know, you've got to keep persisting and spending the time to ask the right questions. But women are incredibly, they are really good at participating in mm. this. If you give them the right vibe that what you're trying to do is empower them to get on with living their lives the best way, as opposed to doing something to them but they need they need to be part of the discussion of how you get to that conclusion because that's the best way to ensure that 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 treatment path happens
2: well Dame Leslie what can I say but thank you I think I can say thank you for coming on the show thank you for all of the enormous amounts of proactive work you've done on behalf of all women everywhere thank you for what you're going to be doing with the well-being of women as well and we're fully behind that pledge we been going in and talking to employers ourselves just telling them everything we've learned from the podcast because we spoke to all the experts but thank you so much for being here
3: well thank you for inviting me it's been a real pleasure to talk to you both thank you so
1: much Well, we told you all Dame Leslie was a powerhouse. I think you will agree with us. That was um, really quite incredible, wasn't it? So not just her personal story, but all the insights she had around women's health. I mean, it was just so fascinating. I learned lots of things that I didn't know. I think it
2: was incredibly inspiring. And I think these women are working away on on our behalf for all of their lives, for all of their careers. And it's quite extraordinary. As she says, when women learn about things. They take responsibility and they share the information. That's kind of what's happening now, actually, with the menopause. I'm fascinated by the things that will actually kill you as opposed to the things that you mm. think yes. will kill you. Yeah, we're all so uh, scared well.
1: of cancer and, and everything. And as she said, it's, it's heart disease, isn't it? That's most likely. Going yeah. to and osteoporosis bone bone problems that's really um you know I don't people don't talk about that do they I was very interested in what she said about looking back to your pregnancy as well for those who've had children because obviously it highlights all the health issues that you might potentially get so that is again never heard that before thought that that's well I think it's
2: fascinating isn't it because you know we've had hormone experts on the show before and we've had surgeons on the show before cancer surgeon on the show before and actually if you look back through your life and keep your own record of what was happening. And I know this from the research I did for for my parenting book. As a teenager, what was happening to you um, and how you reacted to things and what your health was like. That is an indicator of what could possibly be your health Mm -hmm. as you grow older. And I think we should be looking at that with our Kids as well, looking at how things are developing and changing and having that all in mind. I think what I really learned from Leslie was to take complete responsibility Mm -hmm. for your own health. And I know we get a lot of women saying, you know, they're a little bit scared to talk to their doctors, they feel a bit powerless, they're in this Mm -hmm. midlife menopausal perimenopause phase, which which makes them feel very underconfident. Actually get your report, get the facts, go Mm -hmm. in there. There are two experts in the room, you are one of them. You Mm -hmm. need to get what you need out of that, and you need to do that for your kids as well. And I think that was a really empowering message, wasn't it, to get from a woman who's so inspiring.
1: Especially about that, you know, women access health services for maintenance. It's not actually a lot of the time for illness. So you should never, ever feel, oh, I'm wasting a doctor's time if I go and see them about this or that or the other. She told us afterwards, didn't she, her motto in life is when you get it right for women, everybody benefits. It's true. It's absolutely true. I think we should have more women like Dame Leslie.
2: Yes. I mean, what do you get above a dame? Can you get something more? She, yes. is, she, is she queen? Is she be is queen. She's she our is queen,
1: queen
2: she? today. Yep. Bum,
1: bum, <laughs> Trish. <Yes. laughs> we have reached Nostalgia New Yes, we have. Tell me. It's the end of the show. Well, what little
2: thing has taken you back in the TARDIS yes. to one of your odd memories of times gone by because <laughs> it, it they get odder and odder.
1: Oh, those. they do. I think this is quite a sweet one because it's, oh, um, it's a comparison, a then and now comparison, okay. because obviously it's October. All the Halloween stuff has been in the shops yes. for about six months and it just took me back to apple bobbing. And, apple uh, bobbing? Yes.
2: I feel like something dark's coming.
1: Oh, no. The very, do you remember, did you do apple bobbing where you got the washing up bowl, put some water That's in some cool apple? <laughs> That was what we did. We didn't go trick-or-treating. We put an apple in a bowl of water and dunked our heads in it to try and get it out with our teeth. That's what we did on Halloween. If we were lucky... You weren't just getting things out of the washing up bowl then. No. You were just. Your mum wasn't saying, can you just get
2: that stuff out of the no, bowl? No, but that no. would have
1: been quite clever, wouldn't it, to yeah. do that kind of, kind of game. And if we were lucky, there might have been a sheet with a couple of holes in it. And obviously, we didn't have pumpkins in those days no. would have known what to do maybe there might have been a replacement could have been a swede do you remember it's swede sweet. <laughs> We went We once
2: did Halloween when we were down in Cornwall staying with yes. my parents and the kids were very tiny. Um, And it isn't really celebrated. It just, it just wasn't a big Not a thing. thing. No. And uh, we went, so we went up the road to the lady who lived five doors up and said, look, the kids are going to come in, in 20 minutes. Can you just give them some mm. chocolate there? You know, they're all dressed up. You know, one's a robot, the other one's from uh, Star Wars. And they, we went up with them, knocked on the door and mm. we came out and they said trick or treat. And the lady said, oh, I've got a treat for you. And she came to the door, and she gave them a banana. <laughs> and I said, "That was the trick." Have you not got anything else? No. That we came and
1: gave you half an hour. Earlier? Oh she, no, she me. kept all the treats. She kept she all the treats. <laughs> that was the trick. <laughs> Brilliant! I love that. What did the kids do? They didn't really know what was going on.
2: They didn't know. Oh. I think it was entertaining. They oh. liked being out. They were only oh. about five or six. So okay. quite, it was quite a funny evening. Now I've gone back. Well, I, can um, I just say before
1: you do it, could yeah. you do it in a Cornish accent? Because I quite enjoyed your little Cornish accent there. It took a long time to get rid of that Cornish accent. <laughs> you have to wait till I'm <laughs> Did you pay a lot of money for, around, for got it
2: got to come that? out again? <laughs> now oh. I've been back... And forth because I was clearing up because it's a right old mess around these parts. Mm-hmm. And I found my very first proper watch that my Ooh, parents bought me. Nice. And it was one of those little, I suppose I must have been 12 or 13, those little Casio
1: oh.
2: ones. Do you remember? A and then I saw one. Yes, it was. Oh, okay. I must have asked. must have been quite a modern one. And I asked, I was thinking, oh, I wonder what I should get Mabel when she gets her first watch. And then I thought, she's 10 now. I thought, well, she won't want one, will she? Because who buys a watch anymore? They've got mobile phones. They, who tells the time anymore? Exactly.
1: Well, I have to say... Kit bought Casio, not that long ago. Oh, the gold point. one. It's okay. a thing. It's a thing. For Casio. There See was it. a little rhyme that goes with it that they all say about Casios. I'm like, listen, I don't think you're listening. I got this ting on my wrist and it's glistening. Casio. That's what they're what saying. Say. I don't know what to say.
2: <laughs> I can't oh, really I... tell if I'm covered in the hot sweats because <laughs> of not COVID cold or whether well, what you just did on screen was just, I it don't was... know what it was. <laughs> I think we'll... It was the movements, it was the moving. That
1: went with, thankfully nobody will see that, but uh, blame the teenagers, that's all I can say brings us to the end of this week's Postcast from Midlife. New episodes are available to listen to every Sunday on your podcast provider and we would really appreciate it if you can make sure to download your episodes so they count on our listener numbers. And if you could rate and review us too, that would be most marvellous. And please tell your friends about us. We want as many women as possible to join in the Midlife
2: Conversation, which is what our private Facebook group is all about. So if you're not a member, do
1: come over and join in the chat. And you can use it to post any feedback on the topics we discuss discussed as well as suggestions for other things you'd like to hear talked about or celebrities and experts you'd love to hear interviewed or you can email us at hello at postcards or pop a little message on the instagram
2: goodbye Bye.